You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tian Yang, head of research at Varian Perception, and today I'm joined by Simon White, our managing editor at Varian Perception, and we're going to have a discussion around a potential new dawn for commodities. Uh, so, Simon, um, you know the the kind of commodity new dawn, the bullish commodity trade, that's been somewhat of a widowmaker trade for the past few years. You know, we've seen a number of people try and call the bottom in things like oil, things like natural gas. Um, but today, it does feel like something's a bit different. Um, structural and cyclical forces do seem to be coming together, um, coming out of this recession. Um, you know, could you take us through what you think are going to be some of the key drivers for the uh, commodity markets um, as we head into 2021? Uh, yeah, thanks, Tian. Uh, so this is based on a recent report um, that we put out that um, you know, we'll, we'll release to Real Vision viewers. And it's basically the, the title kind of gives it away. It's the next commodity super cycle. And what we've seen basically is an alignment of uh, drivers that have come together. You know, normally you get one or two things happening and it's kind of makes something quite interesting. But today we've got a very compelling kind of lineup, uh, as you said, structural and cyclical. So, you know, the way I would think about it, we have the overarching kind of theme of um, the macro drivers. So we're in a very different what we've called an inflationary regime now. You know, we, we've basically left the sort of era of monetary policy dominance, and now we have much more activist fiscal policies. And if you look historically, that tends to mean that the underlying inflationary risks have risen. And in that environment, you know, you kind of financial assets are uh, unlikely to perform as well as real assets. But on top of that, you know, we, we, we look at, we're always very data-driven and very perception. And we have built what we call the capital returns framework. And what that basically looks at is it looks across all the industries and we try and find the industries that are essentially capital scarce. So they've seen uh, essentially money coming out of them for an extended period of time, investment uh, coming out of them. And that leaves them in a situation where they are really unable to respond to a change in demand. So the companies or the types of companies that kind of float to the top of our screen, even before we get to this sort of macro environment, are a lot of commodity sectors, and that to us is very interesting. You know, we've seen a lot of disinvestment uh, coming out of commodity. You know, we had the last commodity super cycle; the peak was maybe 2011. Um, you know, we're coming towards the end of that, so there's there's not really a situation where many of these companies could respond properly to a change in demand. And where's that demand change going to come from? Well, you know, there's kind of two things: there's real demand. You know, where where there's a recovery essentially in demand coming out of this global recession. Uh, it's going to be slow, um, but it's certainly moving in, in one direction. And on top of that, we have investor demand as well. You know, the people are uh, investors. The whole investment community is very largely underweight real assets, uh, real assets like commodities. And that means when we're in this new inflationary environment, people need to start thinking about hedging inflation risk. And they're worried about the, you know, the currency that things are denominated in, i.e. the dollar or fiat, fiat money in general. Then they're going to have to start looking to alternatives. Real assets and commodities are, are one of those alternatives. 
Okay, so there's a, a number of uh, points that unpack. So uh, maybe we can start with, um, I think you, you use the phrase fiscal dominance. Um, what do you mean by fiscal dominance? Like what, what kind of regime have we been in and, and why are we moving towards this fiscal dominance? So it's kind of a, a fancy term, but the term uh, really means fiscal policy dominance. And really it's the, the norm of things. So you look historically, you know, over the last 100, 200, 300 years of central banking, Generally, it's the it's the government that essentially has the upper hand in how policy, monetary policy, is 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 driven and how it's organised. The last 30 to 40 years are really a bit of an anomaly, and especially the last 20, 25 years, where you basically have the situation, you know, the conditions of very kind of low inflation, low and kind of well-behaved inflation that's allowed uh, governments essentially to uh, allow central banks to have more. Um, upside when it comes to organizing policy. So basically, we've been in an environment where what's called monetary dominance, where uh, central banks can set interest rate policy, essentially for the needs to keep um, uh, you know, employment, they've an employment mandate often, and obviously to keep inflation low as well. Um, and that era is kind of coming to an end. And the reason for that is that um, the drivers that allowed central banks to be able to operate policy as they did, are now kind of running out of road. Um, and we're sort of realizing that the more central banks get closer to the zero bound, the harder it is for them to have actually any discernible impact um, on conditions. You know, like there's a recent article from Bill Dudley, you know, ex of the Fed, making that exact point. You know, the Fed is coming to the end of what it can conceivably do. You know, rates are near zero. There's a few things it can do. It can make rates negative. Does that make a big difference or is it counterproductive? You look at Europe, quite likely it's counterproductive. Um, they can also you know, buy more debt. They can do more QE. Again, that seems to have the law of diminishing returns when it comes to these sort of policies. And there's really only one angle left, and that's what Bill Dudley said. And so a lot of people are saying, a lot of central bankers are saying, is that like, we're, we've kind of run out of road here. We need some help. And that help comes from the fiscal side. And that's basically what's happening. You're seeing more activist fiscal policies because it's really the only way to kind, you know, to try and stabilize the economy, especially when you hit crises, you know, the great financial crisis, 2007, 2008, um, you know, the only entity that could really, you know, rescue economy from that is government. Um, and then once they're in that situation, it's very hard for them to get out of that situation. The latest, uh, you know, kind of uh, crisis to be befall us, the pandemic, is just another example. There's no entity big enough, strong enough that can basically uh, salvage the economy in such a in such a big crisis situation as the government. So the government is having to step up. But the difference here is that what we took as um, low risk environment for central banks when they practice things like QE uh, have not led to inflation. And that's lulled people into a false sense of security because it's very different when a government begins to borrow and spend with impunity because not only do they create, you know, there's more money created so it can do the spending, um, it also creates the demand that goes with it. And that potentially, historically speaking, has often led to much higher, high, and some, in extremely cases, hyperinflation. Okay, so you cited a few examples there, you know, 2007 um, and, and, you know, talk about how, you know, before this era of central bank independence, you know, Keynesian their thinking tended to dominate. Um, so I guess what we're actually trying to say here is that um, this expansionary fiscal policy is likely to become a more permanent state. So compared to, you know, the last 20 years when, when fiscal policy is, exp uh, is ex expansionary, 
it, they're going to run deficits for many years now, right? It's not like before where you just run it for one or two years and then you back off and then you go back to letting monetary policy drive. I think what we're seeing is a shift to where fiscal policy is going to be very expansionary for a long time. And then the role of monetary policy is just to help finance that deficit. Um, and, and there's a number of historical precedents, right? I mean, you know, previously we talked about things like, you know, the Fed Treasury Accord, 1942. Um, but again, it's very similar where, you, you know, like we have the pandemic this year, you have the, you know, you have World War II and, you, you know, and the saying is that central banks have a moral obligation to help the economy. So therefore you should help by buying government debt, keeping interest rates low, allow governments to borrow and spend. And I think that's the kind of setup we have today. And I guess the concern is that we have a, you know, a repeat of potentially the 1960s into the 1970s, where as the situation persists, inflation expectations become unhinged. And, and then obviously you get a lot more inflation and then become somewhat problematic. So um, I was wondering if you could dive a little bit into kind of, you know, some potential lessons we would learn from the 60s and 70s. And, and, and really, how should we think about inflation now? If we are moving to this different world of fiscal dominance, you know, what's going to happen to inflation? So, the, yeah, I mean, the, the 1960s is a great, great example. I mean, the way we've characterized it is that the inflationary risks are greater now than they've been since the late 1960s. Obviously, the late 1960s in the U.S., that led into the 1970s, you know, the stagflation. And that was a decade that was kind of pockmarked with very high, often double digit inflation and uh, very stagnant growth. Um, you know, what's kind of interesting, if you look back at that period, like what, what kind of um, what kind of kicked it off? You know, you basically had um, expansionary fiscal policy, but you also had it at the same time as where the central bank, the Fed, at the time believed that it had more room to ease than it really did. So they were essentially acting in concert with the government. So you had the Nixon administration, who was basically, you know, wanting uh, easier policy to help, probably help with the election in 1972, but, you know, obviously to help the economy as well. And you had essentially a pliant central bank that was willing to help the government in that, in that end. Um, and that really sowed the seeds. Now, the situation got a lot worse in, as the 1970s went on. They had a lot of bad luck. They had, uh, you know, Nixon closed the gold window in 1971. So that was the final link between, you know, fiat money and anything actually solid behind it. Uh, then you had the, you know, the Arab oil embargo in 1973. The end of the Nixon, you know, wages and price controls came after that. And at the very end of the decade, you had the Iranian revolution. So all these things were kind of like, I guess you could say, sort of bad luck. Um, but the seeds were sown by essentially fiscal expansion. Um, and central bank aiding of that expansion. Um, and, you know, the parallels here are kind of interesting is we have um, fiscal expansion to deal with a crisis. We also have had the most radical change in federal, uh, the federal central bank's uh, monetary policy for a long time. They have now uh, moved to an average inflation targeting regime, which essentially means that if they see any undershoots in inflation, they're more than happy to allow an overshoot in inflation. Um, they've not given any sort of idea about how long they would allow it to overshoot or how long they care about an undershoot. I think that adds to the uncertainty. And also they're trying to target uh, maximum employment too. And what that basically tells us is that they are willing to kind of play with fire, if you like. You know, there's a, there's a willingness just because we haven't seen inflation for such a long period of time. It's, as I say, lulled people into false sense of security. And there's a willingness to allow inflation to go a little bit higher um, and then a belief that it's very easy for the central bank that once they see inflation, it say it's at three, three and a half percent, like, oh, you know what, we'll put the brakes on now and everything will go back to normal. Our fundamental argument 
is that that won't happen because the underlying risks uh, to inflation have changed. And in this new environment, you know, we, we've characterised it as um, the lake regime and the ocean regime. So we came from the lake regime where, you know, situation is very calm. And if you had sort of rises in inflation in the lake regime, they're unlikely to turn into anything particularly nasty. You know, central banks could just tweak interest rates a little bit higher and we could all go back to sleep. But in the ocean regime, which is basically where we see ourselves now, conditions can very quickly become much more turbulent. And in the and in the ocean regime, you know, a garden variety rise in inflation, say from like, I don't know, disruption to a supply chain or cost push, demand pull, all the usual reasons that you might get a, a slight move higher in inflation. In the ocean regime, they can suddenly move, you know, turn into much larger rise in inflation that are disorderly. And the takeaway here, you know, as far as we're concerned as investors and people that advise investors is what does that mean for your portfolio? You know, in the same way that, you know, lake going vessels are not suitable for ocean going travel, you know, how should you be thinking about your portfolio to make it more ocean ready? I see. So there's, there's a few interesting points you raised there. Um, you know, you mentioned the Fed's shift in, um, in monetary policy regime, but that also made me think of, you know, all the discussions we were having before the crisis hit about, you know, MMT, modern monetary theory, and so forth. And it seems like a lot of the intellectual justification that would be needed to create an inflationary macro environment has been laid already, right? On the one hand, you know, we're saying we should just spend as much as we can until there's inflation. And now you have the central bank saying, yes, we agree with that. Let's just keep going until we get inflation. You know, let's all do it together. And at the same time, you know, an, another quite obviously extreme shift in our monetary policy regime this year is the Fed is going out you know, buying corporate debt, buying high yield debt, um, causing the deterioration of their own balance sheets. And, you know, as you mentioned, right, since Nixon, you know, took, took us off the gold standard, the Fed's balance sheets continue to deteriorate. And in turn, obviously, the value of the dollar is backing is going to become less and less credible over time. So it does seem like a lot of these things are coming together to, you know, take us into this ocean regime, as you say. Um, but, but obviously, when I think about the ocean regime, I don't think it necessarily means we're going to 5-10% inflation tomorrow, right? Like even in the 70s, these things take time. Um, typically, you need people to stop doubting, you know, what inflation actually is, to suspect that cost of living is going up much higher than they expect. Then when it comes to negotiating wages and so forth, they, de they demand, you know, CPI plus 5 or what whatever it is. And then you get these wage price spirals and you really kind of lose control. So I, I guess for investors today, this is more of a, you know, later on in the cycle, as we use up the excess stack in the economy, that's more worrying. Um, but I guess today it's actually just literally about pricing in the risk of inflation, i.e. the risk premium for inflation probably needs to start going up. Um, you know, when we still look at things like the U.S. Treasury curve, right, term premium is still incredibly negative. And, you know, obviously we know nominal rates are hitting zero. It just seems like, um, you know, investors, are really setting themselves up to lock in some very negative real returns. And, and to that end, obviously we've seen, you know, the start of the moves in things like gold, obviously commodities starting to do well. Um, but really it's quite hard to think about what are the ways to actually hedge inflation. So, um, you know, you know, I, I wonder if you have any, any thoughts on what are the, the different ways investors can do it. Gold's an obvious example, but you know, what about others? You know, what about actually going and trading inflation swaps? What about, you know, Bitcoin and the like, what, what do you think? So, yeah, I mean, they, they, we always end up, you know, what's the best way to do this? And I'd tie back to one point you mentioned, you know, exactly. Just because we've moved into this new regime, 
it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're going to hit high inflation. You know, we, um, along with all our sort of longer term indicators, we look at a lot of shorter term or cyclical indicators. And they are saying right now that over the next year, at least, you should be expecting more disinflation. And that's kind of what you'd expect to see, you know, coming out of a recession. You know, you know, inflation is a lagging indicator. Um, it tends to peak when the recession is, is happening. And we've kind of probably already seen that. And then it starts to taper off. Um, but the longer term environment has changed and, you know, you could be in the ocean for a long time and have perfectly placid weather. But when it changes, you know, it can change very badly. So, you know, in that environment, you, you want to prepare, you know, and as you say, how do you prepare? So I think there's two things, you know, there's two ways we're looking at. It. So there's, this, there's, there's a shift towards making your portfolio more inflation resistant today. And that involves things like, as you said, that involves adding more exposure to things like gold or inflation swaps or other alternatives like like Bitcoin. And maybe we can talk about these things in a bit more detail, you know, later on. Um, but the key is to to start thinking about doing it today. And obviously the, the, the main thing, you know, the main thing we think that people would want exposure to in this inflationary environment is commodities. And again, you go back to the 1970s, you know, we've got, that's the most sort of recent example of like a, you know, Western country experiencing sort of like very high inflation, you know, double digit inflation. And if you look uh, by the asset classes, um, do you look at commodities, equities, et cetera, the only asset class that delivered a positive real return, and that's obviously the key here, real return, in 1970s was commodities. Every other major asset class delivered a negative real return. And we've become so used to, I think, really conflating real and nominal returns. You know, in, in a low inflation environment, it doesn't really make much difference. But in an environment where inflation could potentially move much higher, you really need to start paying attention to your real returns. So commodities were, were one of the best performing um, asset classes or the best performing asset classes in a real uh, real return basis in the 70s. In, uh, equities generally were a kind of a shunned asset. You know, equities uh, essentially, you know, they've got the return on equity. Um, with a bond, you can negotiate the coupon. You know, there's a maturity with a bond, whereas equities have infinite maturity. Um, and equities essentially in this high inflationary, higher rate environment, started to become a shunned asset. So overall, equities uh, didn't do very well at all on a real or a nominal basis. But within equities, certain sectors did, did very well. You look at um, energy stocks, in, industrial stocks, material stocks. These sectors performed the best in the 1970s. So, you know, you want to start looking to orientating your portfolio um, towards essentially real assets, right, or, or, or companies or, or firms that basically have access or, you know, they're, they're, they're very close to real assets. So they're going to benefit from real assets upside. Um, and why you want to start, another reason why you want to start doing that that now is because, you know, you won't be the first person to do this. You know, as it, as it becomes apparent that we're in a new regime, in this ocean regime, and inflation risks have risen, um, more people are going to have to start thinking about reallocating um, more to, to real assets like commodities. And obviously, and this is the, the the next part which I want to throw back at you, is that could happen at any point, right? That this 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 particular setup in some ways could happen at any point. We don't know when inflation is going to come, but we think it's in this cycle. But why, particularly now, given given some of the things we've looked at, Jing is a good time um, to start looking at allocating to some of these commodity sectors and some of these commodity industries. Yeah. So I think what what makes commodities as a sector stand out to me is. Um, you know, typically the supply response tends to take take a while. You know, if you're going to build a new mine or drill a new well, you know, these are typically timescales measured in 
in the order of years, right? A new mine or conventional wells could be three to five years. Okay, maybe some shale can be a bit quicker, you know, one or two years, something like that. But typically, what, there's this pattern where supply responses are very delayed, and often producers tend to wait as well to to really make sure there's an upturn before they, you know, action new 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 projects. And what that lends itself to is prolonged periods of mismatches between demand and supply. So um, this is something quite unique to the to the to the commodity sector. And obviously, for a lot of capital intensive sectors, this is a property that inherently means it has kind of these boom bust cycles. And what's interesting for commodities, obviously, we've had quite a long kind of bust. You know, you know, it's been pretty capital scarce. Um, you know, most investors have been fleeing the sector. There's not been a lot of capex, um, not not being a lot of investment going in. So a lot of the preconditions that are needed to ensure that supply remains tight and remains tight for a long time is in place. So now if you just get a pickup in demand just for a natural economic recovery and then eventually, you know, from investors moving into the sector because of this, you know, massive underweight or structural, structurally the fact that very few investors have commodity positions, you know, I think those things are going to come together to create um, a quite potentially explosive moving prices. Um, it's very interesting from a portfolio construction point of view that if you look at the history of commodity price returns, um, typically when commodities have high volatility, it tends to be to the upside, which actually gives it a quite nice property because you know typically for things like equities and so forth, usually the higher volatility phases are when they're crashing, right? So the volatility smile, you know, is priced to, to, to be more to the to the left. So you got. So I think there's a few things that naturally make commodities a bit more suited as we move away from fixed income, as we move, you know, as we hit the zero bound for commodities to take on that role. You know, it's obviously had a longer track record, it's been more proven, and a lot of the demand supply dynamics actually a bit easier um, to kind of judge as well. Now, obviously, for things like gold, where it's not really consumed for anything, actually, it's a bit harder to judge because obviously, whatever supply that there is there is but it's not really consumed right so the supply tends to grow over time and arguably for bitcoin obviously supply doesn't really move but it's not really consumed either um but the cute thing about a lot of the commodities you know as you mentioned right energy you know metals and mining is that over time obviously they have to get consumed as well so there's obviously natural rate of decline on the on the supply side and they naturally have to be replaced and so you know when these sectors lose access to capital you get very extreme tightening in in the supply side and then obviously when the demand picks up you get the kind of explosive moves higher so so that's kind of basically what we're seeing um, um, right now so um, and, and the way I think we've really kind of um, tried to focus in on this is using the capital returns framework that, that you kind of mentioned earlier as well um, so here you know if, if if um, viewers are interested, I think the best thing to read is um, a collection of reports by Marathon um, Asset Management in a book called Capital Returns, um, which was edited and put together by um, Ed Chancellor. And I think that was really the book that originally inspired us to kind of really think about how to build a quantitative framework around capital cycles and, and, and to really, you know, dr drill down into this. And, and so, you know, obviously at Varian Perception, this is what we've done. You know, we typically look at things like um, you know, capex, capex and R and D relative to the asset base. You know, things like depreciation, amortization relative to asset base. You know, what's the return on capital, right? So typically in capital scarce sectors, you know, there's not a lot of capex going in, but obviously a lot of the asset base is being worn down, and yet you know, returns on capital is actually leveling out and starting to pick up. And this is kind of what we've been seeing in things like energy and things like metals and mining. And um, 
And so those are kind of probably the areas we really want to be drilling down into and trying to actually think about what are the best parts to invest in. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And then, if you know, looking back historically, you know, this capital returns framework, I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, if people spend so much time focusing on demand, um, you know, analysts will be trying to focus, you know, how many flights people are going to take, <clears throat> you know, how many X, Y, and Z people are going to use widgets, whatever. Um, and it's very difficult, obviously, to try and figure out what's happening with demand, whereas actually trying to gauge what's going to happen to supply is actually much easier. Um, you know, and so in, in an environment where you see, as I say, capital coming out of a particular industry over a persistent period of time, or the other way around, if you're seeing lots of capital coming in, it really gives you a good sign that that industry is going to either underperform or outperform. You look at, for instance, you know, shipping in 2007. You know, obviously the, the lag times there between, you know, uh, putting a, a ship order in and the ship getting built, you know, it's several years. Uh, the housing market, Spain, US, Ireland, pick, you know, make your pick around 2006. Same sort of thing. You had a huge glut supply coming on just at the point where demand, you know, was collapsing. You know, TMT boom in the, the late 90s, all these things, you know, the great examples of um, where you've seen a capital cycle uh, either peak, peaking or troughing. And where we are today with the commodity cycle, the commodity cycle last peaked in 2011. So right when you had a lot of these projects coming on board, you know, this was like um, coming into the shale and the, the other stuff that later in a decade, but you had a lot of these projects coming on board at the worst possible time. Because at that point in time, capital was flooding in and a lot of capital was being misallocated to, to bad uh, projects. And here we're just at the other end of that cycle. I think what's interesting to emphasize, though, is that, you know, we, we didn't just like run this on just commodity sectors, you know, this capital returns analysis just on the commodity sectors. We've done it for the whole world and for all sectors. And the sectors that appeared at the top are commodity sectors. So they, they're not just within commodities. We're looking at, for instance, gold and silver and oil and gas. This is among sectors across um, the whole world. So I think, you know, maybe it's worth emphasizing that even without the inflationary backdrop, which I think is huge in terms of the inflationary risks changing, you know, the commodity sector is still primed to outperform over, say, the next, you know, one, two or three years. Yeah, and, and I think it's worth also just repeating that it's the capital cycle is actually quite an intuitive idea, right? If you have lots of money chasing limited opportunities to make profit, then obviously over time it's going to, you know, destroy profit, right? If this industry looks very sexy right now and all the money goes in, you know, in the end, okay, a lot of infrastructure might get built, you know, a lot of nice things might come out of it, but the investors didn't make any money. You know, like, you know, what you mentioned 2000.com boom, um, building out the fiber network and things like that, right? Like, typically, if you have too much money chasing what are actually brilliant ideas, if there's just too much money there, then, you know, nobody makes any money. And obviously, conversely, if an industry is, you know, extremely hated, there's no money flowing in, then by definition, the kind of marginal return needed to attract investors to go in will be higher and there's obviously a lot less competition so then the cycle becomes the money flows into the hated industry you know it makes outsized profits over time that attracts more investors into the sector and then obviously and then the new entrants compete away the profits until eventually you know nobody a lot of the weaker guys can't make a profit and they have to leave 
and then you kind of go back, to, you know, the cycle starts again, right? And the survivors do well. So um, there's a, there's all these signs now coming together for, uh, for you know, things like oil and gas, um, you know, met, uh, gold mine you mentioned, right? I mean, copper is another one we've talked about. Um, so, so maybe this is something we can um, dig into a little bit more because, um, so when you talk to people about investing in commodities, um, you know, people typically wonder, should we should I do it directly? Should I just invest by ETF with a, just a commodity fund? Um, or should I be looking at just, you know, buying ETF in the sectors? Or should we be looking to pick stocks and so forth? So um, I think, and now, at least for me, I think the key is to actually emphasize stock selection within commodity producers. Um, typically, commodities as a sector has not lent itself well to just buy and hold long, uh, the, long the commodity itself just because of these boom-bust cycles that happen. And because of the, the fact that the volatility tends to be um, very much to the, to the upside, you actually need an actively managed strategy uh, to be able to capitalize. So basically, when it's on the way up, you either need to rebalance or sell and then rotate to kind of maintain. And obviously, we've done analysis showing, you know, if you have a rebalancing long commodity strategy over time, it obviously significantly outperforms just the buy and hold, just, you know, if you just go off commodity uh, futures contracts. So, you know, there, there needs to be an element of actively managing the cycle to really make the most out of it. And so in many ways, it's going to be half investors to do that themselves. So you want to probably outsource it to, to actively manage fund manager or actually buying the equities of companies. If those companies are well managed, is almost another way to outsource the active management, right? Then it's up to the commodity producers to be able to manage their expenses well. And then as prices go up to try and monetize or generate cash flow. So I think for us, with this underlying understanding that in a boom bust cycle, active management is important and you can't just sit in the cycle for the whole period. Um, picking which parts of, of the industry and picking the stocks really becomes um, uh, very, very important. Well, I think that's a really actually critical point. And it's another point we touched upon, you know, in our in our presentation is that in this new kind of regime that we're talking about, like the whole investment world is almost going to be turned upside down. You know, all, all the things that people took for granted in the last 20 or 30 years, you know, are probably going to be turned on their head to some extent. You know, like people have just got used to the fact that stocks and bonds are negatively correlated. You know, but you look historically that when, you know, real rates uh, tend to rise, we basically are in higher inflation environments anyway, uh, the stock bond correlation tends to, to rise. And if you look at like the three-year rolling stock bond correlation, you know, it's gradually moving higher. Um, and that basically puts a huge amount of investment kind of strategies at risk. You know, essentially, you're two things here. You've got, first of all, you've got no real real assets exposure. You've got two financial assets, stocks and bonds. And, and they're now not negatively correlated. So they're not giving you any diversification benefits. They're, in fact, reinforcing one another. So I still that, that, that sort of um, mindset, you know, I think has to fundamentally change. You know, I think. People are already, you know, if you somehow, you know, if you look at gold, where gold is today, it feels like where gold is today is where other real assets and commodities might be in a year, two years, three years time. Because a lot of people who wouldn't touch gold um, even a few years ago are now dipping their toe in. A lot of people, very serious investors, are now beginning to, I think, feel that the environment is changing um, and inflation risks are rising. And in, in, in that environment, you know, in some ways, the purest inflation hedge and the most obvious one is gold. So you're seeing you're seeing a lot of people that never would have been involved in gold are involved in gold. The problem with that, of course, is that when you have lots of people in a relatively small market, 
it means gold is now suddenly trading sometimes like a risk asset because people, you know, market goes down, people still maybe because it's a very liquid thing, they get rid of their gold. So gold goes down with it. I don't think that should put people off when it comes to gold. But I think it does mean that the environment for real assets in general, if we're right, that people are starting to go enough to allocate to more real assets will make um, will make their investment more difficult, which ties back to your point, you know, this is not something that you can necessarily just buy and hold. So, you know, we, we used our capital returns uh, framework to basically come up with um, industries that we see as the most capital scarce. A lot of these industries are, you know, commodity based and a lot of them are actually oil and gas sectors, you know. So looking at the oil and gas uh, sector much more closely, I mean, obviously everyone knows about the shale boom and bust that we've had. Um, obviously, that has a lot of geopolitical implications as well as implications for investors. But why do you think now is a good time for people to be looking at oil and gas, not just from a sort of macro perspective, but looking at the industry a bit more closely? Yeah, so I think it's about it's about the lack of access to capital for the sector that's forcing noticeable changes in behavior. So in the original 2014 bust, even though obviously share prices initially crashed, oil prices initially crashed, a lot of companies were able to survive, raise more f- financing, and actually keep drilling, keep trying to grow production. And that's what's really different this time around. On the back of this crash, access to capital is really drying up. If you just look at transcripts of what companies are saying, if you look at just you know surveys of you know CEOs of all these EMP companies, there's a lot more emphasis now on balance sheet on reducing debt, on trying to raise financing, and simply moving towards maintaining production and, and actually thinking about cash flows. And I, th- I think that's something that's really sh- um, been a big shift um, this time around, which actually should naturally restrain the actual supply response, even as oil prices go up this time. And as we talked about before, to get kind of these major sustained periods of demand supply mismatches, um, you really need to ha- have supply be not, not be very responsive. And so six years since the bust, what we've seen is obviously major cuts to CapEx everywhere um, within the sector. You know, research budgets are obviously down. And, and now the lack of access to capital means that there won't be as much of a supply response you know, as the economy normalizes. In terms of the demand for oil, yes, obviously 10 years, 20 years out, clearly the, the world is moving away. But in terms of just this year, next year, you know, these transitions take time, right? The, the, the demand for oil can still get back up to roughly where it was um, pre pre COVID, right? Like are people, you know, obviously once the virus is more contained or there's a vaccine or there's herd immunity, you know, people are still going to go on holiday in the future, right? Like the, you know, it's it's not unreasonable to think that demand for energy is going up. Yes, the mix towards renewables will change, but even for the kind of oil and gas fossil fuel bits, it still has a reason to exist, and it's gonna, and 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 so you know, and there's still definitely going to be room in it for kind of another last cycle up. So, you know, the key here is that the supply response has been real in the sector and it's going to be limited on the way out. And especially now that you're going to have this talk about ESG, Green New Deal, it's going to massively deter new projects, new CapEx. So you've got this actually somewhat uh, of a sweet spot setup where there's just not going to be much of a supply response on the way up um, at all compared to kind of usual. And that might actually lead to a more prolonged period of elevated prices before the kind of next bus cycle. Uh, comes through. So yeah, I would say that that's probably the number one thing to focus on. Um, Now, having said that, clearly, 
it's important to differentiate between the different parts of the industry and how it works, right? Very broadly speaking, you got, you know, EMP, EMP so exploration production guys, right? Who are obviously trying to drill for this, look for this in the ground or, or in the sea, right? And try and drill for it. And right through to, you know, the, the pipelines or the transportation infrastructure in the middle, right through to the downstream guys, you know, who are doing the refining or doing the marketing around it. And then you have obviously um, the, the kind of oil, oil field services or the servicing equipment providers, right? So the guys that are providing the drills, providing equipment or kind of helping with production. So those are the various parts. And what's very interesting is that actually oil field services, you know, the Schlumberger, Halliburton and so forth, they're not actually flagged as super capital scarce right now, but every other part of the sector is. So even within the sector, there's a bit of differentiation. And in particular, what's really being flagged as capital scarce is more on the EMP and, and midstream side. So those are the areas that are truly, truly being left for dead by investors. Absolutely nobody's interested. You know, obviously we know things like the MLP structure is basically not no longer viable at current kind of um, at prevailing market prices. So that sector has basically been completely abandoned by investors. And yet, if you're willing to go do the work and look through some of these midstream assets, you often find you're picking up like a toll road you know, infrastructure type of asset, right? Like in this environment, if I would say to you, hey, do you want to buy a railway? You know, they're trading very on very high multiples. People think of them as, you know, critical infrastructure, monopoly, right? And nobody's going to, you know, it's not going to be replaced. And they're just collecting their tolls, but they're valued very highly. Yet, if you go to the, you know, oil and gas space and you look at the, the best pipelines, right? Say, you know, from the Gulf of Mexico, you know, that's absolutely necessary. Nobody's going to build a second one. They're trading, you know, at 40% discount to what, I mean, book values or something like that, or even lower, right? So, so there's, there's quite a big kind of valuation discount on quality assets just because they have the label of oil and gas on it. And I think these are the kind of things that actually make it very, very interesting um, to kind of, kind of dig around. I mean, that would be a risk that I would bring up because it feels that, you know, the certain industries have just been left behind, as you said, capital starved because they're just not ESG compliant. I mean, a lot of ESG investing it used to be they try and think about what is ESG and then see if it ticks a lot of boxes. But some ESG investing, because it's easier, you just get rid of whole sectors that you count as not ESG. So, for instance, you know, coal. We discussed um, coal in the in the report as well. Probably the least ESG compliant um, sector you can think of. Um, obviously, that makes it difficult. But what, what would be your response to that sort of pushback then? If people were saying, hang on a minute, what's the point of me investing in these industries? Because if no one else can then nothing's going to happen. I think this goes by a, li a little bit to kind of value investing or what intrinsic value is, right? So obviously, a lot of the ESG thing is about whether these things can re-rate. Um, are there somebody else to buy off me at a higher price, right? Which is obviously a, a critical part of a lot of investment thesis, right? Uh, you need the market to be able to re-rate higher um, for you to kind of monetize your investment in a lot of cases. Um, however, if the ESG headwinds are so large, say in coal, right? And you get, you get assets that are still cash flow generative, okay? That can still churn out lots of cash, starting to trade on one times or two times EBITDA, right? Or, right? And where the debt is starting to trade at 60 cents on the dollar, but the debt is covered by one year of earnings. These are when you get into extreme, extremely cheap valuations that, you, you, right? Where, where you're like, you know what, at some point, I'm not relying on the re-rating for me to get my money back, right? I'm still viewing businesses, uh, I'm viewing shares as businesses. I still see the cash flow they, they spit out. And then 
all I'm going to do is I just need that cash flow to be made and then I'm, I'm made whole and everybody, everything else is kind of upside. And, you know, calls are a very interesting one because obviously it's understandable and if people have a value judgment they want to make, they don't want to invest in, it's, it's perfectly understandable. But arguably that's what's creating the kind of opportunities in the sector. Um, you know, globally, coal still accounts for about 35% of um, electricity generation. In a lot of emerging markets, it's 60 to 70%. And obviously in the Western world, US, Europe, you know, it's more 10 to 15, right? And so even then, even, you know, the transition is obviously being sped up, you know, policy will try and drive the acceleration away. But, you know, if you just need one or two years to get your money back, it's kind of looking very attractive. And obviously, if you go to emerging markets, there's obviously a much longer runway for these, for potentially these companies. And because it's so hated, you look at some of these EM companies, like their return on equities are averaging 30, 40, 50% over a cycle. Say if 2016 to now is a cycle, which is just, I mean, if you just remove the name and show people these numbers, I mean, people would definitely want to know, right? But obviously, because, because you slap that label on and it's just gone. So I think it's... Um, you know, these are things where there's a lot of intrinsic values there that, you know, you can view as almost, this is a more classic cigar butt type investing, right? There's like a decent puff left in the cigar butt. Do you want to kind of, um, you know, kind of invest there or not? And oil and gas probably not, not quite the cigar butt to the same extent, but clearly a similar kind of setup. If you look at energy share of the S&P, you know, it's like a 2%, right? We're at like all time lows here. And what's very interesting is that historically recessions, uh, often mark major changes in market leadership or or, refer, or trend reversals. And energy's kind of weighting in S&P has basically seen quite a big turn after you know, the last four or five recessions in the U.S. So, you know, I think it's pretty, um, it's, a, it's obviously a very contrarian setup, but at some point the intrinsic value gets so compelling um, that it becomes um, worth looking at. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I think, I think, as you say, it's, it's like there's no such thing as something being absolutely cheap or expensive. It's always relative to expectations. You know, and that's kind of what implies applies in you know some of these industries we've been looking at. I think another point worth mentioning as well is that um, with all this money being thrown at green projects now, so you mentioned the EU Green Deal, you know that the US, um, you know, we may have a situation where there's a lot more money thrown at green deals there as well, and that makes it essentially easier for some of these companies to essentially borrow attractive financing to borrow to make their businesses more. Uh, environmentally friendly to more ESG compliant. So that's certainly something we begin to see. I know that certainly some gold miners have had access to, you know, various forms of green funding, often, as I say, enhanced conditions because they're kind of government backed um, to make them more um, ESG compliant and more green. Um, so that, that's another angle that could obviously help with, um, with some of these commodity companies in this cycle. The talk is obviously net zero by 2050. That's kind of the more aggressive right targets that people are talking about and obviously in order to hit those that does need to be quite a big shift in the composition of um kind of energy supply right a lot more towards renewables and so forth um but obviously the delta versus that to what um is kind of a average expected pace of transition versus i.e business as usual that's still quite a big delta 
So I think it's just more what we're seeing is that we're priced for kind of very extreme kind of, you know, probably even more aggressive than that kind of um, energy transition um, kind of path. And the reality is that these things are typically um, are typically quite messy. Um, so, you know, I think clearly it's, it's not going to be for everyone and arguably just slapping an ESG label on the oil and gas company will probably not satisfy a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of potential investors. But at the end of the day, I think it's about, um, you know, are you if you're investing and you're trying to generate return and it's your primary focus, then, you know, the, the valuation can become quite compelling at some point. Um, but obviously, if you are driven by more value based approach, then, you know, it's understandable why it might not fit for everyone. Um, but having said that, obviously, there's only certain parts of the commodity market that that would not be ESG compliant. Right. There's others like, you know, copper. You know, there's there's commodities linked to, um, you, you know, the battery revolution, right? I mean, lithium, nickel, some of these, these other ones, or you know, the the rare earth metals, where again, there's going to be a similar dynamic potentially at play. Um, obviously, what we found is that copper is potentially, as an industry, actually quite capital scarce versus some of the other ones. Obviously, the, the sexier you are, the more linked to technology, the more capital has generally been available. Um, copper has been that kind of funny no man's land in the middle where it is going to be a beneficiary, but it's probably not seeing as much investor interest as probably compared to the kind of really, you know, green kind of technology stuff. So, yeah, I think if investors don't like it, something like copper has still got a very nice setup, you know, as we mentioned, right? Um, again, and even where countries like China, there's potentially a China wave behind it where China consumes, you know, half the world's copper. They only mine about 5%. And, it, and you know, as we go into this arms race in the future about, you know, US versus China, who's going to get there first in terms of build, you know, transforming their economy, coming up with new green technologies, electrification, that, you know, everybody's going to be demanding more of these commodities, right? This is like a potential, you know, big arms race that then gets replicated in urbanization projects across the world. So this is, could be a very similar kind of big upshift in demand that persists for decades. And as you say, if ultimately government policy starts to back it, and in particular, if governments puts funding available towards research in the area to really kind of, you know, ensure the technology starts being adopted at a faster rate and more efficiently, then, you know, there, there is potential for kind of a really big super cycle in the kind of, in, in some of these materials like copper that can benefit from both a capital scarcity inflation point of view, but also from the green technology point of view. And uh, so, Simon, um, I guess, where do you think gold and silver would fit in that spectrum of benefiting from inflation versus ESG? Well, I think they've got their own ESG problems. Uh, obviously, gold mining, copper mining, sorry, silver mining, you know, they, they, they do environmental damage. They have um, problems with their workers in certain, you know, poorer countries. Um, but again, you know, it sounds like they're trying to move down the route of becoming more ESG compliant and getting funding to do so. Uh, and some of the mining companies are more ahead of the curve, like Newman um, than other ones. But, you know, everyone kind of gets the message now and they're heading in that direction. Um, you know, and it's, as, as, as we've said, you know, it's about your, your price is about versus expectations. So, you know, as expectations improve, you know, you're probably still getting a decent price for a lot of gold miners right now. We've looked at some gold miners. I mean, with gold mining, it's the old um, Mark Twain quote, you know, a, a gold mine is just, uh, you know, it's a hole in the ground with a liar at the top. And often it's about trying to avoid um, the most egregious, um, the most egregious kind of um, gold mining companies. 
you know, the previous cycle, I think, saw a lot of um, huge overspend. Their margins were very poor. Uh, they seem to have tightened their belt now significantly. Um, uh, they're a lot better run. You know, there's been a lot of consolidation in the sector as well. Um, so, that's, you know, a lot of the, the companies you're buying now are, are yeah, better run, better managed, better margins. Um, and on top of that, like the other sectors we've been discussing, there's been a huge amount of capital has come out the gold mining sector. Um, the result, the annual production peaked about a year or two ago and it's basically plateauing. And, and now it's starting to come off more steeply, partly because of obviously the pandemic and restrictions on uh, production. Um, but that certainly looks like it's peaked. Um, exploration budgets have been rock bottom. So there's been no new major uh, gold discoveries for you know two or three years. There's always seems to be rumors of some, but I haven't seen any sort of confirmed uh, lately. So, you know, it's ticking all those boxes. And, you know, as I say, the, the, if you just avoid the worst ones and what we've done in our in our work is tried to, what, you know, use a screening methodology to find, you know, what we consider to be the worst gold miners, focus on the ones that are, are better quality, um, you know, and they, they should do very well. They're very cheap to the price of gold and have been for quite a while. So, you know, you're going to, you're taking on extra risk to the gold price, but you're also potentially got a lot of uh, extra return. And so I think 100%, you know, you want to have, 100% you want to have gold, maybe a little bit of silver as part of your real asset uh, uh, allocation. You want to have things like gold miners, obviously the other industries we've discussed as well. Um, and then I think as well, you know, what's getting obviously more and more interesting is, is things like um, Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin has been outperforming gold lately, the amount of money into sort of standard Bitcoin assets. So you've got there's a, a well-known ETF, you know, that's went from that only had that had only had but had three billion of assets back in May. It's now over six billion, um, and obviously the, the overall Bitcoin Bitcoin market is is massive now. And when you hear like serious investors, people like you know Paul Tudor Jones came out earlier this year. You know he he thinks it's one of the best inflation hedges out there. Top of that, of course, it's not just a hedge. He thinks it's going to be something that's going to perform extremely well. Um, so I think again, you need to be looking at having an allocation to, you know, adding things like Bitcoin to that as well, because I think it's uh, it's something that's very seriously worth considering. Okay, so Simon, I think today we've kind of had a whirlwind tour through, you know, the commodity landscape, right? We talked about, you know, inflation, fiscal dominance, supply, supply demand mismatches, oil and gas, copper, gold, um, Bitcoin, coal, you know, you know, should we try and summarize now a bit? Um, you know, what, what for, for kind of listeners and viewers, what do you think is kind of the, the kind of key takeaway from from uh, today? I put, I put it very, I think very succinctly. Um, the best trades are when you get a number of disparate factors uh, lining up. Um, they're, they're the most compelling ideas. They don't come up that often. Um, but when they do, you've kind of got to seize them with both hands. Today, I'd say you've, you've got four different things. You've got the macro, the micro, you've got price, you've got positioning. You know, you've got the macro, this background of inflationary environment uh, is going to become very supportive for inflationary conditions, probably the most riskiest inflation conditions since the 1960s. You have the micro, you have some of the most capital starved industries in the world or commodity industries. Uh, you have the price, you have basically real assets, specifically commodities at 50 year low to financial assets. And, and you have the positioning, you have an investment community that is extremely underweight real assets. And when the situation changes and the realization of the risks of change, this is going to create, uh, ultimately create a bit of a stampede towards reallocating more towards uh, real assets and things like commodities. So as I say, when you have all the things lining up like that, it becomes an extremely compelling idea, one that's sort of difficult to avoid. 
Great, that's a wonderful summary. Um, thank you, Simon. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.